welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley, a company that is near and dear to my heart. I really like all of their products, and my family especially loves their 100% grass-fed beef sticks, which are clean, gut-friendly, and protein-packed snack options. They never last long in my house because my kids enjoy them so much. And I love how seriously Paleo Valley takes creating healthy and environmentally friendly products. Their grass-fed beef sticks are the real deal. They're sourced from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished cows that are never fed grains or harmful antibiotics. And they come from small family-owned farms right here in the USA that practice rotational grazing, meaning farmers literally rotate the pastures on which the cows graze. So they aren't feeding on the same soil forever depleting its nutrients. This means that the cows are helping increase the nutrient density of the soil and put carbon back in the soil where it belongs. Another important difference, virtually every other meat snack on the market is made with a processing agent called encapsulated citric acid or ECA. Companies use this in order to guarantee a long shelf life for their products. But one study from the University of Illinois at Chicago found that ECA can cause joint discomfort caused by stiffness and swelling, muscle aches, upset stomach, and more. Instead, Paleo Valley beef sticks use the old world methods of fermentation, which gives the beef sticks a long shelf life without harmful acids and chemicals. And they're also free of brominated vegetable oil, hormones, and MSG used in many products. And the natural fermentation process means that they're a natural source of probiotics as well. Check out these amazing grass-fed beef sticks and all Paleo Valley products at paleovalley.com forward slash mama. And if you use the code mama15, you'll save 15% on your order. Again, that's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com forward slash M-A-M-A and the code M-A-M-A 15 to save 15%. This podcast is brought to you by Sunday for Dogs, a new staple in our house that the newest family members could tell you the most about if they could talk. Lollipop and Hemingway, our two family dogs, are loving this food and they get so excited when it's time to eat now. When we got them, I knew I didn't want to feed them overly processed kibble and homemade options were a lot of work. And Sunday has been my solution. It's the first and only that I know of human-grade, air-dried dog food, combining the nutrition and taste of all natural human-grade foods with the ease of zero prep, ready-to-eat formulas. So Sunday's is, in my opinion, the best way to feed your best friends. Sunday's easier for pet owners to manage the refrigerated human grade dog food brands. So there's no fridge, no prep, no cleanup. And unlike most human grade dog foods, Sundays is gently air dried and ready to eat versus the other brands that are cooked and frozen instead. It's as simple as just scoop it into their bowl and let them eat. In a blind test, Sundays outperformed other competitors 40 to zero, and they contain no artificial binders, synthetic additives, or general garbage. All of their ingredients are actually easy to pronounce. We worked out a special deal just for you. Receive 35% off your first order by going to Sundays for Dogs slash Wellness Mom. That's S U N D A Y S F O R D O G S dot com slash Wellness Mama and use the code Wellness Mama at checkout. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and wellness.com. That's wellness with an E on the end. And this episode is about how to eat to beat disease, the new science of how your body can heal itself. And I'm here with Dr. William Lee, who is a physician and scientist, and he's the president and medical director of the Angiogenesis Foundation and the author of the book by the title of this podcast, Eat to Beat Disease. 
In this episode, we go deep on specifics related to this topic, uh, including how he got into this field, how health is the natural state of the body, and how often we just need to support the body and get out of its way. The surprising research showing that certain foods might have as much or more power as drugs to help the body beat certain diseases, how the body interprets messages from food in various ways, including foods that can prompt stem cell growth, how fasting comes into play, ways to reframe our food choices to support the body without feeling deprived. He debunks some urban legends about certain foods, and a couple of them might surprise you. His surprising research and his take on beer and wine drinking. And then we go a lot into gut health. We also have a fun wrap-up at the end on a mutual topic that neither of us expected the other to be interested in. So very fun conversation for me. I think you will learn a lot as well as Dr. Lee is a wealth of knowledge. So without further ado, let's join him. Dr. Lee, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Katie. It's a real pleasure. Well, I have so many fun questions and we're going to go in so many fun directions today. But before we do, I have a note that you took a trip across the entire U.S. And I would love to hear a little bit more about that because I did the same thing with my kids a few years ago and it was definitely memorable. Well, you know, the the thing that I have always marveled about the United States is just how different parts of the country are from one place to the other. And, you know, we hear about, uh, I live near Boston, so near a big city, and we hear about big cities having uh, great food, and you hear about places called food deserts. And so one of the things I was really interested in, besides looking at gorgeous scenery, is actually just to kind of experience what it was like to look for different types of food, healthy food that anyone can choose, no matter where you are. That was one of my kind of my own personal agendas is to actually take a look and to see is it going to be, how difficult was it be? And what was really surprising is whether I was in Ohio or whether I was in Montana or whether I was in Wyoming, I always was able to find something that I recognized that, you know, I could eat that would help my body be healthier. And so that actually was really good news to me. And, and of course, we saw a lot of amazing country, which makes me much more appreciative of where we live. That's wonderful. I had the same experience. I feel like it takes a little more work sometimes, but it's definitely possible. Not always as easy as our home kitchens, but that's encouraging that you had the same experience. Right. And um, you are most known for your work, at least to me, you're most known about your book, uh, Eat to Beat Disease, the new science of how your body can heal itself. And I love even that languaging about the body healing itself, because I feel like it's important to keep that top of mind of often we think of looking for outside sources to heal us and really we work best when we support the body's natural process and then moving to a state of healing itself. But let's start really broad. And I would love to hear a little of how you got into this specific field of research. And then also, how is it really possible to eat to beat disease? Because I think this is a really important concept. Yeah, well, I'm a physician. So I'm in, trained in internal medicine, which means I take care of young and old men and women, healthy and sick. And, and although in medicine, we're trained to write prescriptions and to chase diseases with more and more interventions. The reality is, is on a personal level, my philosophy has always been to keep people healthy. And if they get sick, they fall off the wagon. Kind of, How do you get people back on um, the, the path of health, uh, which is really where our body wants to be? Now, that's really important because when I was in medical school and in training, one of the things that we were always trained to do is to identify disease, define disease, what is cancer, what is heart disease, what is diabetes, what is dementia, and you know what is obesity. So you know we get really good in the medical community speaking for myself, and identifying and labeling disease and explaining why, why they happen. But actually, what I got more interested in is what do we, how do we define health? What is health? 
And I realized that even, even when I was answering that question, I would often say health is just the absence of disease. If you're not sick, you're healthy, right? But that actually always wound up being really frustrating to me and not a very satisfactory answer. So fast forward, I actually wound up starting a nonprofit organization called the Angiogenesis Foundation. And angiogenesis is how your body grows blood vessels. And it turns out that that's a very important feature of many diseases, more than 70. But even more importantly, our circulation, our blood vessels are critical for health. Now, in the work that I've done with my nonprofit, we've actually helped to develop more than 40 FDA-approved new treatments for cancer, complications of diabetes, and even vision loss. And so it's been a thrilling ride to actually find, you know, to be able to be involved with developing new treatments that can help patients. When I wear my kind of medical hat, that gives me great satisfaction. But I realized as I was getting more and more successful in this, that the question that my patients were always asking me is, hey, doc, what, what should I be eating? And I started to realize that the biggest opportunity that I could bring to the, that I could address and I could really try to bring to the forefront was not how to actually chase diseases and how to treat diseases. That's important. That's never going to stop. But how could we roll the kind of roll the clock back and prevent disease in the first place? And that gets back to the question of what is health. And that led me to really ask the question, health can't be the quote absence of something. It has to be the result of something else. And so that something else happens to be your own body. Our own bodies are hardwired to heal itself, which is really remarkable. And that to me is the clue to how to actually choose foods that can activate those hardwired systems to help our body do what it really wants to do. And I know you have a TED talk about this as well uh, that's gotten a whole lot of views. I'll link to that in the show notes about how we can actually eat to starve cancer. So before we go deeper, I want to go on touch on all disease, but I'd love for you to just hit some high points of that specific approach because I'm hearing from quite a few people who have cancer or have a loved one with cancer right now. Yeah, well, look, I mean, cancer is that one disease that we all fear. Every single one of us has been touched, you know, probably one or two or maybe zero degrees of separation by this dreaded disease. And here's kind of like the newsflash. Cancer is something that we all, healthy people, uh, form in our bodies all the time. I've got cancer in my body. You've got cancer in your body. Everybody listening to this has cancer in their body. And the reason is our human bodies are made out of 40 trillion human cells. And these cells to keep us alive have to divide. They have to make more of themselves, right? So you get rid of some old ones, the old ones that are actually retiring and you get the new ones. And the new ones are really what allows us to go day to day uh, getting better. The, one of the big things about dividing uh, cells uh, is that if they don't go perfectly and you make one or two mistakes, think about 40 trillion cells, like 40 trillion things in an assembly line being assembled at the same time all day long, 24 seven for 70 or 80 years, you're going to have some mistakes. And all it takes is one or two mistakes. And you've got what we call a microscopic cancer. It's a mutation in a cell. And so from the time we're born, from, from when we're young kids, to however old uh, the listeners are today. We've got these tiny little mistakes, microscopic cancers being formed. But the great news is that microscopic cancers are like pimples. You probably have a few forming on your back all the time and you'll never ever know it because they go away by themselves. And when they go away, when cancers go away, it's because our immune system wings by and prevents them from actually becoming a problem. It's like cops on a beat seeing a kind of a dude that doesn't look so savory on the corner, 
puts them in the back of the squad car and takes them away. Now, the other reason that cancers don't grow normally, okay, is because our body has this tremendous health defense system, like the immune system. Another system is the angiogenesis system. Our body wants to feed our healthy organs, but when there's a cancer, it doesn't allow blood flow to feed the cancer. So that's what I gave my TED talk about is how do we actually get rid of those blood vessels that uh, cancers want to grow for themselves? So I've been involved more than 20 years with developing new treatments, biotech treatments, many of which have been FDA approved that can cut off the blood supply to a cancer. It's not chemo. It's not radiation, it's not immunotherapy, it's anti, actually it's a standalone way of treating cancer called anti-angiogenesis. It's changed the game because it doesn't have the side effects of chemo. And it's very natural because it helps your body just starve the cancer. But with the amazing thing that I talked about at TED was having done all this with drugs and biotech, what I realized is that we can use the same system to test food. So when you test green tea and soy and cabbage and herbs and spices and citrus and into these same systems we use for drug development, the jaw-dropping result was that many of the foods surrounding us have as much and sometimes greater power locked inside something that's edible and delicious than the drugs that we've been spending 20 years creating itself. And so this is food as medicine. I wound up actually becoming a real proponent of using science to look at nutrition. And this allows, I think, the medical community to participate in this conversation as well. Previously, it's sort of like, well, you know, it's nutrition. And we're not a nutritionist, the doctors say, or they don't want to believe in it. But you know, every cancer patient always asks their doctor, hey, doc, what, I sh what should I be eating for myself? And the answer is often, eh, don't worry about it. Or you can eat anything you want. Or, you know, um, there's no data to support anything. And that's now changed. Just three weeks ago, a new paper came out to show that if you eat five grams of dietary fiber a day, if you have cancer and you're being treated with something called immunotherapy, five grams of dietary fiber is the amount you'd have in, the si in a medium-sized pear or a large apple, okay? Not very much. That, that having five grams of dietary fiber a day decreases the risk of mortality, death, while you're getting treated by 30%. So what you eat does matter. And in fact, it can be a matter of life and death. That's so fascinating. And I'm so glad to see this research catching up because I feel like the best outcomes happen when we can merge nutrition and the latest science and also probably some age old techniques that we're now learning the science to support that cultures have known for years and years and years. And I've seen, a, for instance, a graphic online where a patient went to a doctor and the doctor told him, oh, I have a, a, you have a metabolic disease. And they were like, oh, so should I change my diet? And the doctor said, no, you should take a pill. And I love that that's now not what's happening, that we're seeing people like you who are in the research, who are applying this, and we're seeing good results. It's so exciting. So on that note, I would love to hear maybe some of these top foods that you're finding in the research that are really surprising. Like you mentioned fiber, but like what are some of the others that have a really surprising potential here? Yeah, well, so being somebody who works in food as medicine, I have been gratified to discover that it's not one food that quote the old superfood idea, but in fact, there's more than 200 foods and more being discovered literally every single week, foods that can activate our body's health defenses. And so, you know, the question you're asking is so important is what are some good foods that people should know about? But I would say first, let's talk about how your body uses food. Uh, when you put something in your body, what is what happens that actually can protect your health? So 
when we eat, when you know, our body, our health is protected by our blood vessel system and our angiogenesis system. Our health is also protected by our stem cells. So most people don't realize that, you know, it's true, salamanders and starfish can regenerate, but humans also can regenerate just slowly. And so while biotech companies are trying to figure out how to deliver stem cells, Mother Nature's beat everyone to the punch, and there are foods that can actually prompt our stem cells to heal us from the inside out. This is true regeneration. Third, we're protected by our gut microbiome. Now, a lot of people have been talking about the gut microbiome, but it's 39 trillion bacteria packed inside our bodies, most of it in our gut, our colon. And um, uh, these gut bacteria do, do everything from streamline our metabolism, help us lose weight, uh, bad, harmful fat, to help us heal and the amazing thing is that these, some of these gut bacteria seems to seem to text message our brains and, and tell our brain to release social hormones, which then governs our emotional health as well. Our fourth health defense systems are DNA, much more than a genetic code. Um, you know, they can use antioxidants to defend themselves. They can also fix damage to prevent cancers from growing. And our DNA actually protects us from the environment we live in. And then finally, our immune system, which is more powerful than we ever thought, because when you actually have a good immune system, not only are you resistant to bacteria and viruses, and everybody knows about the viruses and immunity, uh, you know, after the pandemic, but actually what most people don't realize is that the same immunity that we want to be able to defend us from invaders from the outside world, like bacteria and viruses, also protect us from invaders in the inside world, which is actually inside our body. And that's cancer. Remember I told you about the cop on the beat driving by, taking, picking up the bad guy. That's what a good immune system does. It takes out the garbage. And so we want uh, to be able to find cancers and get rid of them. And so these five health defense systems are chugging away from the day we're born to our very last breath. And the great news is that there's more than 200 foods. Most of them are considered delicious foods in food cultures that can actually light up our health, activate these health defenses and help us ward off disease. That's so fascinating. And it makes sense. And I've always thought of that in, in terms of how do we just naturally support the body in these processes that are already built in. And you hear all the cliches about, you know, we don't get sick from a lack of, we don't have a chemotherapy deficiency. We don't have a whatever, but it's like learning how can we meld science with what we know now to actually best support the body's natural processes versus work against it. And I would say probably a lot of foods in the modern diet actually probably actively work against those systems you just talked about and make them less efficient. And so it seems like there's a, a good balance of foods that can probably be very supportive, foods that could be overtly harmful. And maybe there's an individualization aspect there as well that for certain people at different times. So I'd love for you to touch on that. Yeah, well, this idea that we're all different is something that's permeating everywhere when it comes to our understanding of health and even our treatment of disease. Uh, you know, I, what I wanted to kind of bring to light for your audience is that, you know, as a medical doctor, we've been trained to write the same prescription for the same condition, no matter who it is, right? But actually, if you think about it, you know, would you really want to give the same prescription to the to the old grandma who's a, a thin little stick as as opposed to the young guy who's big and burly, like a football player or somebody who's obese, you know, like the, the bottom line is that we've known for years that every individual is different and not when it comes to food, it's even the differences are even more dramatic because our metabolism all is different because the amount of body fat that we actually have that, you know, and, and our own unique metabolism. So how do we work with adapt to, you know, the individual now let's overlay one additional uh, thing, Katie, that's so important, which is our 
personal preferences, right? Everybody has got their favorite foods that they love to eat. It usually starts with that aroma that you smelled coming out of your mom's kitchen that brings you back to your childhood that everyone can relate to. Man, that I remember that's exactly what my mom used to cook and I and I love it. Usually people love that, love those kinds of foods. But everybody will, you know, if you went to a, a buffet line, everybody's gonna be able to pick out the things that they prefer to eat. Preferences are so important. We all want to choose what we want as opposed to being restricted or deprived of something that we want. And so this idea of a shift of, you know, the, the idea of being able to told what you shouldn't eat, don't eat this, don't eat that, uh, create a state of deprivation. Nobody likes that and it doesn't work. When you actually point people towards foods that they love, and this is what I always do when I talk to people, tell me what foods you prefer. And let's choose among those foods that are known to actually help you. So in my book, Eat to Beat Disease, I list 200 foods. I tell people to take a Sharpie and a list of foods and just start circling the foods that, you know, you like, you know, and if it's a strawberry or if it's, uh, you know, um, salmon or if it's uh, uh, buckwheat or, you know, whatever it is, people start circling those things. And then I tell them, hey, guess what? Look at all these things you circled. These are your favorite foods, your preferences, and they all are good for you. So start with these foods you've preferred, and you're already way ahead of the game. It's building confidence that people can make the right decisions that are good for them. That's such a great reframe and a great point in not having that focus on deprivation. I think that applies to all areas of health, not just even disease, but even if someone's trying to lose weight, you can't punish yourself then you can't, it, that deprivation mindset will only get you so far and eventually hormones will be willpower and you have to address all of those. And I think that's a great solution to that. Um, I'd also love to talk about, so we've talked a little bit about foods themselves. When it comes to beating disease, I'm curious your take on the absence of food and if that also has a role. I know I've read uh, some studies related to fasting and their potential role in cancer or not. And it seems like there's a lot of opinions here. So I'd love to hear your take on this and what you're seeing. Yeah, so it's a great question, Katie. And, and here's how I approach it. Fasting is viewed as restriction from unbridled eating, right? So basically, kid in the candy shop, you walk into this thing and there's infinite number of choices. Let's go ahead and gobble it all up, okay? That's actually where our society has evolved to starting from, you know, really the 1950s and post-World War II, this idea of industrialized food, you can get food anytime, anywhere, you know, at, in any quantity. Um, abundance is something that is viewed as something wonderful for a prosperous society. And yes, you know, in America, we, we are fortunate to be able to live in that world. But actually, go back in time, not so long ago, a couple of generations, and people really were careful about their food. And if you really take a look at how any type of living creature subsists in the world, they are not stuffing their face. They're eating mindfully, choosing what they can find when they can find it in ways that they know are good for them. And I think that it's almost like when you talk about sort of fasting and, and restricted uh, eating, uh, I'll come back to uh, that in a second. It's almost like we have to shake off this mindset that we've developed that more is better. If you really think about it, our body is designed to process nutrients and to look for, and our, our minds are, are, are programmed to look for what our body needs. And so if we listen to our body, okay, as opposed to listen to our eyes or marketing or whatever else it is, the, the bottom line is that, you know, we will eat when we want to eat. Do you remember that, you know, like when we were all younger, uh, I, I'm sure 
you know, every kid will remember this. I don't want to eat dinner. I'm full. I don't want to eat lunch. I've, I've had enough. You know what? That's listening to the body. That's an incredibly important thing. And so here we have eat three times a day, eat three square meals, make sure you have this. They even let, you know, now we even have a plate that actually has a portion. It used to be a pyramid. Here's what I think. I say that we should know that we probably all eat a third more than we're supposed to be eating. That's sort of the research on average. And we cut back a third on what we're supposed to eat. Think about that. You know, you go, if you went to a family dinner and you had a plate that you're loading food onto, if you just took a third less than what you would, instead of two, two heaping servings, you know, you take just one. All right. Now you're, now you're down to a third. Eat that slowly. Make sure you pick the food that you enjoy. You will be actually restricting your own calories now. And that's, that's actually all that, all that's been shown there is that in fact, eating what your body tolerates in terms of the amount and the rate it tolerates actually improves your health defenses. You don't overwhelm your body, right? So when you're filling up a, a cup of water under the sink, if you turn on the spigot and it's running through pretty slowly, that's fine. If you turn it on full blast, it'll quickly overflow the, the mug, all right? And that's what we, we don't want to do that to our body. So restricted eating is relative. Now, when we actually time restrict our eating and we eat, you know, 16, eight. So, you know, that's kind of like fast, intermittent fasting. It turns out that's just a technique to discipline ourselves, to allow our body to recover from the amount of calories we're dumping into it. Here's what's interesting. When we do intermittent fasting, all of those body health defenses I mentioned, our circulation improves, our stem cells reboot, our gut microbiome resets, the ecology gets healthier. It's a better community. Our DNA fixes itself a little better. And our immunity also refreshes itself when we actually give ourselves room to breathe. Okay. So the, the, the remarkable thing is that eating less than we're used to, if you want to call that caloric restriction, that so be it. If you want to call it fasting, so be it. If you want to make it really extreme, you know what? That works too, but you should just know that anytime you do anything to an extreme, there will be consequences. So the extreme of fasting is being on a shipwreck or desert Island. You have no food. Okay. Or being lost in a desert and you will whittle away. I mean, your, your defenses will get stronger for a little bit and then you'll eventually whittle away and you'll die. And so we don't want to go to any of those extremes. We want to find that sweet spot for our health. And that's where these personal preferences and listening to your body all make a difference. That was such a clear summary of all of this research surrounding fasting and caloric restriction. And the data seems pretty clear, at least from what I've read, that there is an element of caloric restriction correlating to longevity. And that gets even more intense when we're talking about specific disease. But you're right. I think it only works when it can become sustainable. And that maybe for some people, things like time-restricted feeding can help be a tool to learn that process and to learn to listen to their body or to at least restrict calories within a window so they're not over-consuming for as many hours of the day. I also think this is maybe an interesting tie-in that doesn't get talked about enough when we talk about blue zones, which of course have been a buzzword in the news, and everybody wants to hyper-focus on what are the specific foods that they're eating. And I've always thought, well, hang on, let's take a step back from that because it also could be about the timing of when they're eating or the fact that they're walking there or they're eating slowly or they're with community. And we know that community and that is a huge factor in health that we're not talking about enough. I would guess that also, of course, comes into play with 
disease pathways. Are there any other specifics related to food that really surprised you or that could be like tangible tips for people as they're trying to adopt healthier eating habits? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I try to do is to use the scientific research to help people get some clarity so that they're less confused when it comes to nutrition, right? I mean, that's one of the things about nutrition that's so overwhelming sometimes is that you hear, well, we're told this one day and then we get whiplash the next day to told it's not good for us to eat anymore. And so then people are like, well, what's the point of even listening to anything if nobody can actually make up their mind? Well, this is where science actually comes clearly through, shines through this. And I, one of the things that I like to do in, in terms of sl- some surprises I want to talk about are really that there's a lot of urban legends out there. And I think that science allows us to, you know, kind of um, open them, open up and bash those urban legends like a pinata, you know? So what's inside there? What's the kernel of truth that's really there? And, and why is it misunderstood? And, and so what, what do we really do? So I'll, I'll, I'll just give you a couple that's out there. Right now, there's an urban legend that's very common about among women that they should avoid soy products because soy actually can cause breast cancer because there's a phytoestrogen, a plant-based estrogen that could be dangerous for, for breast cancer. And this is not only is it legendary, even doctors are quoting it to their patients uh, who have, have breast cancer or who are, have a high risk for breast cancer. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. The, 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 let me tell you where the origin of this uh, myth came from. So it is true, some human breast cancers are sensitive to human estrogen. And the human estrogen, the hormone estrogen, can actually um, uh, fire up uh, the breast cancer to grow. It is true that the plant has something called a phytoestrogen, a plant estrogen, but unless you're a chemist, you wouldn't actually know that if you pick, held a picture up of the plant estrogen and help the picture up of the human estrogen, they look nothing alike. The plant version looks nothing like the human version. And then the research has shown the plant version actually blocks the human version. So kind of the plant estrogen is kind of like mother nature's tamoxifen, which Drug companies have developed and doctors prescribe their patients to block the human estrogen. Okay, so that's one layer of the onion to peel back. Plant estrogens are not dangerous because they don't replicate what human estrogens do. Second, it turns out that plant estrogens are anti-angiogenic. They starve cancers by cutting off their blood supply. This is research I have done along with many, many others now. Um, When you eat soy, edamame, when you eat tofu, when you eat um, uh, fermented soy products, you drink soy milk, it actually cuts off the blood supply to cancer. Now, how do we know this? We've tested soy and its extracts in the same systems we actually developed, used to develop drugs to treat breast cancer. And actually it works. Now, what about humans? Does it actually work in people? Turns out that a study of 5,000 women who are at the highest risk of developing of, for breast cancer, which is women with breast cancer, have been studied. And it was found that those women who have the most soy in their diet actually have a decrease in mortality, 30% decrease if you eat more soy. How much more soy? About 10 grams of soy a day. That's about you would get in a tall glass of soy milk. So easily, easily achievable. And and if I told you this one study, which was called the Shanghai Breast Cancer uh, Study, Women's Breast Cancer Study is just one study. So all the critics come out and say, well, cherry pick the study. Here's what I will tell you. The meta-analysis, which is looking at all the studies, show 14 studies in a row with women, breast cancer, and soy and survival. In every single case, eating more soy is better for survival. And in zero cases, no case, is eating more soy resulting in more mortality. So that's a really important 
example of something to give. And by the way, for, for moms that are thinking about what they should feed their kids, you know, like if you have a daughter and you're trying to decide, should I feed her, you know, soybeans or edamame, are they going to be dangerous for her? Totally safe. Um, uh, soy intake actually is something that is really healthy. It's a great source of protein. It's a, um, a vegetarian, it's a vegan source of protein uh, that can actually be really, really helpful. Now, obviously you don't want to eat too much of anything, but you know, reasonable amounts of soy protein are useful. So soy is one uh, myth. There's other myths on tomatoes and chocolate and, and even red wine that, you know, we can actually break into to really kind of get down to the nuggets of what's good and why, and where are the myths coming from? That's so fascinating. And I'm curious in, in the soy research, is there any uh, specificity around sourcing? Like I would guess there's still probably processed forms of soy that we would still want to avoid. Or for instance, I've been pretty vocal about not consuming very many vegetable oils because I feel like there are just better alternatives, talking like olive oil and things like that. But I would love if, was there any specificity in the research or any guidance you have on that? Yeah. So it's a great, that's a, so, such an important question because, you know, if you look at the junkiest food you can pull out of the middle aisle of a grocery store, ultra processed food, pick a box to any box, pick a can, any can. And you look through, if there's like 20 or some ingredients, you can't pronounce most of them. That's what we call an ultra processed food. It's something that your grandmother wouldn't recognize as food. You know, all those ways of defining ultra processed food. A lot of soy is processed and used as filler material for ultra processed foods. And we do know that, that the more ultra processed foods you eat, the higher the risk of all kinds of diseases, including some forms of cancer. And so, you know, that's an example where um, the source, the form, the processing all makes a, a lot of sense. It turns out that like raw soybeans are, are fine. Roasted soybeans are fine. Fermented soybeans are fine. The closer you can get to the whole food and the minimally amount that you can actually you have a factory process it, it's probably in the okay range, but anything, you know, that if you actually start to uh, grind it up and process it and, and make it less and less recognizable from its original source, the, the, the less healthy it actually is. So I'm, I'm with you on that. And that's a good rule of thumb, by the way. You know, how does one go about navigating healthy food? You know, like a lot of people carry around this kind of guilt or confusion. Like, look, I, I, I just lived, I've just grown up my whole life doing this way. I don't know where to start. And what I, what I really try to do is to basically say, when you go to a grocery store, you know, first go around the outside, go to the produce section. That's what I do first and see if there's anything that's appealing to you there at all. Start with that. Spend the most time in the, in a produce section. It could be an apple. It could be a carrot. It could be a mango. You know, those are the kinds of ways that I think if you go to the traditional villages in Europe and Asia, you talk about the blue zones, people go to the market. And the first thing they do is they don't go for the cheese or the butcher shop first. They go to the fruit, the fresh fruit, vegetable and herb section. That's where everybody goes right from the beginning because that's where the freshest stuff is. Start there and you can go and build out your shopping cart after that. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think the the process distinction, I'm glad you got to clarify that because often I think when people think of food, they think of calories and that's a very basic oversimplification, of course, but that's what a, a lot of the mainstream conversation starts around. And I have a friend who says, your body's not a bank account, it's a chemistry lab. And it, so we pay attention to the signals these foods are sending, not just the foods themselves and the calories in them. There's so much more to that discussion. You did mention red wine. And so with a bunch of moms listening, I would love for you to get a little more nuanced on the wine discussion. And I'm hoping it's not a no wine episode for recommendation, but I want to hear your take on it either way. No, well, look, first of all, I really can appreciate a nice glass of red wine and even white wine, but all the health research has shown that, you know, a glass or two of red wine has been generally beneficial 
to you. You know, there's been uh, good studies looking at heart health and brain health and even obesity. But here's the real crux of it. The good stuff in red wine is not found in white wine. It's what makes the red wine red. And it's the fermentation process of the grape skin. So anybody who's ever, if you've, if you've never toured a winery, it's worthwhile doing it if you can, uh, or even looking at a YouTube video to check out, you know, like how wine is actually made. But red wine is made with red grapes, keeping the grape skin. And the grape skin has a lot of these polyphenols. The meat of the grape also is pretty good, but the skin um, actually has a lot of it. And so when you ferment grapes, which is how red is, uh, wine is actually made, the natural fermentation process with sugar and alcohol actually draws out these natural chemicals from the skin of the red grape. They're called bioactives. And why are they called bioactives is, well, it, the name says it all. They're biologically active in your body, okay? And, and so basically red wine is filled with these luscious, uh, that's what makes red wine ruby colored. All right. And it also gives wine that's characteristic, red wine is characteristic kind of flavor that when you hear those um, people who are wine experts describe the flavor of wine, the blackberry notes, the tobacco notes, whatever, that's also due to the bioactives, the flavors that are in there. And those chemicals alone or together, including resveratrol, actually activate our body's health defenses. They make our circulation better. They um, help to grow blood vessels. They um, help recruit stem cells. They are good for our gut microbiome. They help our, their antioxidants for our DNA. They actually even improve immunity. If you look at those bioactives, what about the alcohol? What about ethanol? Okay, ethanol is what makes us drunk. That's what gives us the buzz. That's a lot of times what makes alcohol kind of social. Well, look, when it comes to health in zero cases, no case is the alcohol responsible for anything beneficial to your health. You know, that gives you the buzz that makes it social. That's fine if you have it in moderation. And some people even can't even tolerate the alcohol part of you're missing some enzymes in your liver, but it's never the alcohol. It's the other good stuff that makes red wine red. That's good for you. So if you actually had a, a alcohol-free wine that is high quality, you're going to get those bioactives. Same thing as beer. You know, oddly, beer drinking actually seems to be associated with some improvement in health and reduction of some forms of cancer like kidney cancer. How could that be? Doesn't beer make us fat, get, help us gain weight? Doesn't it cause cancer? The alcohol is not good for you, okay? It, it's part of, we're human. So it's, it's okay for the human part of us, but the, the social part of it, but actually all the good stuff in beer is coming from the fermentation of the, of the hops that actually is the cloudy stuff that's in our beer. And so again, if you have alcohol-free beer, you'd wind up having all those bioactives. It might be less fun to drink, but that's actually where, uh, that's where all the good stuff is. And so what I always tell people is, look, life is for the living. And so if you're somebody who just enjoys red wine, just make sure you have it in moderation. One or two glasses, you know, a couple of times a week, uh, that's probably fine. I mean, you should always talk to your doctor if you, have a, if you have a problem with alcohol and listen to your body. If you don't feel good after drinking wine, some people have sulfate allergies and other reactions to wine. By all means, listen to your body. Don't listen to your friends. Stay away from the things that you don't that don't agree with you. But that's really kind of a little bit of the demythologizing uh, red wine and beer. Well, that's encouraging. I'm glad it, there's good news and caveats that are important to know. That's super helpful. I know you also talk a lot in your work about gut health. And certainly this is an area that we're also learning much more about, and I'm glad this is becoming a focus. Can you kind of give us an overview of gut health specific to disease and supporting the body in all these ways that we're already talking about? 
Yeah. So gut, our, our gut starts from our lips. Once you get inside your lips, you're into the gut already. And when you go to the very end, which is where, you know, we poop, um, that's also part of the gut. So how long is our gut? It's 30 feet long in the average adult. So think about that. It's longer than your car laid out end to end. And at the very end of the gut in the colon, that's actually, it's called the ileum. It's actually the first part of the colon. Um, and that's actually where most of our gut bacteria in our body lives. And we do have some in our skin and we have some in our crevices and our nostrils and our ears. But the reality is, is that most of it, um, 99% of it actually lives in our lower gut. Now, why is that important? Well, when I was in medical school, we were aware that there was gut bacteria we didn't know how important that is, but our gut bacteria, when we eat ourselves, eat feed, when we eat, we're feeding ourselves, we're getting the nutrients, you know, the calories, the proteins, the sugars, the fats, and the bioactives, by the way, that we just talked about. And then anything that our human bodies don't digest passes on. And then we're feeding our gut bacteria. So our gut bacteria, we eat first, our gut bacteria eat second. Now, when we feed our gut bacteria, then think about your gut bacteria like a pet. If you've got a cat, a dog, a bird, fish, every day you're feeding them and you're pretty careful you're feeding them the good stuff, right? Like nobody feeds, nobody wants to feed their pet something deliberately bad. When you feed the pet the good stuff, you have a, have a happy pet, right? And your pet's grateful to you and actually rewards you with whatever it is that you get out of your pet. Now, if you feed your pet something bad, it will actually get sick. And eventually that relationship you have with a pet is going to be really uh, off kilter. Same thing with your, our gut bacteria. When we feed our gut bacteria, they eat second. Think about it like a adults and kids table. Kids eat first, adults eat second. So basically the, the, the grownups get to eat. That's our gut bacteria. If we feed them something bad, they're, going to, they're, they're not going to do well. And our gut bacteria, 39 trillion bacteria are form an ecosystem. And that ecosystem, when it actually is working well together, it helps our blood sugar, it helps our lipids, it helps control our blood pressure, it helps us regulate our fat, um, uh, it helps our immune system. The immune system part is really fascinating, Katie, because again, we now realize something new about the human body, which is that 70% of our immune system is in the layers of our gut, right next to the bacteria. So think about your gut like a jelly roll, and there's gut bacteria stuffed on the, in the middle of the roll. And our immune system is, is in the layers around the, the, the jelly roll, okay, in, inside the intestines. And what happens is that the gut bacteria, when we feed them well, communicate with our immune system. I, I call it like college roommates. You know, you're in a dorm and you have a really thin wall. The gut bacteria is like pound through the wall and talk to the roommate next door, which is the immune system. And just like in college, you know, you could say what kind of pizza you want just by shouting through the wall. The, the bottom line is that our immune system listens carefully to our gut. When our gut is healthy, being fed good things like leafy greens with great dietary fiber, and you wind up actually getting uh, fed a prebiotic diet that's mostly fiber, or when you're actually eating a probiotic diet, which can contain bacteria itself, like yogurt or kimchi or sauerkraut, um, or even sourdough bread, the good gut bacteria talks to the immune system and, and, and recommends what the immune system does to protect your health. When you screw up the bacteria, you screw up that communication uh, to the immune system. And now your immune system is, is haywire and can't defend your health in the right way. And so I've just kind of given you a, like an eagle's eye view of why it's so important to feed our gut bacteria fiber, which it loves, that's prebiotic foods, probiotic foods, which is the bacteria itself. You can replenish 
the ecosystem, and how that actually protects lots of different parts of our health, including our immune system. That's such a good explanation. And I know in your work, you talk about something called the five by five by five. And I'd love for you to give us an overview and explain this as well. Yeah. So look, uh, I've just tried to make things as easy as possible for people to kind of digest. How do you actually take all this information that, you know, I've been sharing, we've been talking about, and I've been sharing with my, my public on science and research and boil it down into some simple ways you can remember it. Five by five by five stands for the fact that just remember, you've got five health defense systems in your body. You don't even need to know exactly which ones they are. You don't have to memorize those, those complicated terms. You got five systems to feed. Number, number two, the second five, five by five, is that we should be feeding each of those every single day. Do something to feed each of those health defenses. So you're covering yourself. You know, it's kind of like you're watering every plant. You've got five plants. Make sure you water each of your health defense systems and do a good thing to it. And then the, the, the third five is really the fact that every single day we've got on average five times that we encounter food, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and probably a couple of snacks. Okay. And so the bottom line is that each, each time you eat encounter food is a shot on goal. So every time you have a shot on goal, go ahead and do something that's good for your health defenses. And so that's five by five by five. Now, which foods and which health defenses, this is why, you know, I, I kind of created all these simple tables and charts of my book. You can actually take a look at a defense system. There's a list of a hundred or so foods in, in some of the systems. And what I tell people to do, just, you know, when you open up the book, take a, uh, take a picture with your cell phone of the page. Actually, first of all, open up the book, circle the ones that you like, your faves, and then take a picture of it. And that way you can just always call it up when you're actually going out shopping, or even when you're at a restaurant, you're sitting out looking at the menu, man, what should I eat? Well, of course, go for your preferences. But among your preferences, take a look and see if your preferences actually have any of the good stuff, because that's a shot on goal. You can actually activate your health defenses. And now you've done something that you want that's also good for yourself. That's a great tip. And I do feel like the body starts to also get very intuitive and crave these foods the more we feed it good things and that it's a, a compounding thing. But I often like to think in terms of instead of just calories from food, what is the most nutrient density I can get into these the calories I'm already going to be consuming? Like how can I best support my body through my food choices, which naturally leads to very vibrant colors and lots of herbs and foods that are great for you. It's also way more exciting to eat that way. This episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley, a company that is near and dear to my heart. I really like all of their products, and my family especially loves their 100% grass-fed beef sticks, which are clean, gut-friendly, and protein-packed snack options. They never last long in my house because my kids enjoy them so much, and I love how seriously Paleo Valley takes creating healthy and environmentally friendly products. Their grass-fed beef sticks are the real deal. They're sourced from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished cows that are never fed grains or harmful antibiotics. And they come from small family-owned farms right here in the USA that practice rotational grazing, meaning farmers literally rotate the pastures on which the cows graze, so they aren't feeding on the same soil forever, depleting its nutrients. This means that the cows are helping increase the nutrient density of the soil and put carbon back in the soil where it belongs. Another important difference Virtually every other meat snack on the market is made with a processing agent called encapsulated citric acid or ECA. Companies use this in order to guarantee a long shelf life for their products. But one study from the University of Illinois at Chicago found that ECA can cause joint discomfort caused by stiffness and swelling, muscle aches, upset stomach, and more. Instead, Paleo Valley beef sticks 
use the old world methods of fermentation, which gives the beef sticks a long shelf life without harmful acids and chemicals. And they're also free of brominated vegetable oil, hormones, and MSG used in many products. And the natural fermentation process means that they're a natural source of probiotics as well. Check out these amazing grass-fed beef sticks and all Paleo Valley products at paleovalley.com forward slash mama. And if you use the code mama15, you'll save 15% on your order. Again, that's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com forward slash M-A-M-A and the code M-A-M-A 15 to save 15%. This podcast is brought to you by Sunday for Dogs a new staple in our house that the newest family members could tell you the most about if they could talk. Lollipop and Hemingway, our two family dogs, are loving this food and they get so excited when it's time to eat now. When we got them, I knew I didn't want to feed them overly processed kibble and homemade options were a lot of work. And Sunday has been my solution. It's the first and only that I know of human grade air dried dog food, combining the nutrition and taste of all natural human grade foods with the ease of zero prep, ready to eat formulas. So Sundays is, in my opinion, the best way to feed your best friends. Sunday is easier for pet owners to manage than refrigerated human-grade dog food brands, so there's no fridge, no prep, no cleanup. And unlike most human-grade dog foods, Sundays is gently air-dried and ready to eat versus the other brands that are cooked and frozen instead. It's as simple as just scoop it into their bowl and let them eat. In a blind test, Sundays outperformed other competitors 40 to 0, and they contain no artificial binders, synthetic additives, or general garbage. All of their ingredients are actually easy to pronounce. We've worked out a special deal just for you. Receive 35% off your first order by going to Sundays for Dogs slash Wellness Mama. That's S-U-N-D-A-Y-S-F-O-R-D-O-G-S dot com slash Wellness Mama, and use the code Wellness Mama at checkout. I know you have so much more research than we can cover in a one-hour podcast, including a series of masterclasses. And I want to make sure we touched on these. I'll put links in the show notes, but can you talk about your masterclass series? Yeah, well, my, my masterclass series is something I do. It's for free. I do it, you know, every month. And um, you can just go to my website, drwilliamdrwilliamlee.com and, and check out what I'm doing and sign up for them. But here's the reason why I did it. I, that The reason is actually quite important. When the pandemic was first declared in 2020, I was like everyone else. I was sort of, you know, in my house, staring out the window, wondering, you know, what could we do? And look, I'm a doctor and I knew very well that there were no prescriptions to write at the time. There were the hospitals couldn't do anything for us and, and people didn't know what to do. And in fact, they didn't want to go to the doctor. And I realized at that moment, something really profound, which is that this was a moment that we could see that doctors and health systems and hospitals couldn't do everything for us. And yet here we were, my, myself included, making a decision, you know, three or five times a day, uh, I had to go out to buy food. I had to go figure out what to put in my fridge. I had to figure out what to cook every day. And it was never more clear to me. There was information that people needed to learn about, about how to make some really good, healthy choices. How do you get to know your body? your five health defenses. How do you know which foods are actually good for our health defenses? And of course, you know, immune system is such an important thing, but all of our health defenses are an opportunity for us to kind of um, lower our risk for cancer and heart disease and diabetes and obesity and Alzheimer's, all these um, important conditions. And here was that moment that I realized that, you know, there was an opportunity for me. I really felt a sense of mission to be able to do these free masterclasses. And what's really great is that, you know, I've had up to 8,000 people from 38 countries sign up for a single masterclass. And so the idea that 
you know, we, we had this like crazy time we were dealing with, but we learn how to use digital medium like Zoom or, you know, these virtual things to be able to touch people around the planet was incredibly empowering. And so, the, so what I'm trying to do is, you know, kind of set into motion an eat to beat disease movement that puts the power of health in everyone's own pocket and, and, and put in, and there's no, you don't have to rely on the health system as step number one. Now, obviously it, you should see your doctor, you should have a doctor. Uh, it's not a replacement for, but it's all that healthcare that we do between visits to the doctor's office. And so um, from that, from the masterclass, which you can sign up for, I also, for people who really want to do a deep dive, I created an online course that allows you to actually drill in to really understand the nuances of our five health defenses and the specific foods and how do you buy and store and prepare the foods uh, as well. So, you know, it's something that I, I found myself gravitating more and more towards this is really, you know, kind of like what you're doing, which is how do you get the word out about important information that can change people's lives in ways that aren't burdensome, but actually are empowering. Yeah, that's so important. And you have so many great resources. Like I said, I'll link to where people can find those. So if you guys are listening while you're on the go, that's wellnessmama.fm. We'll have a link to the book, the masterclasses, and your TED Talk, as well as a lot of other information I've found from you online. And as we get near the end of our time, a couple last questions I love to ask. The first being, if there is a book or a number of books, of course, besides your own, that's been very impactful for lots of people, but that have had a profound impact on your life. And if so, what they are and why. You know what? I, I will tell you that um, some of the books that have been most impactful for me when it comes to health have actually been cookbooks. And, and I love to look at cookbooks that are coming from food cultures, whether it's Italy, whether it's Japan, whether it's China. And then if you take a look at the, within an area like Italy, for example, if you look at the foods of Sardinia or the look foods of the Amalfi Coast, these are things now on Amazon. You could easily search out Am- Amalfi Coast the re- uh, cookbook. And they'll pop up all these local regional um, recipes. I find those to be incredibly transformative because it teaches me something that I didn't know before that would actually entice me to try something I haven't done before and to use ingredients that I just might learn to love. You know, I mentioned the Amalfi Coast, but I'll tell you, I I looked at a couple of cookbooks from... um, uh, from Venice, Italy, uh, which is a place I visited in the past, but it's so different because a lot of seafood and a lot of vegetables that I, we, we don't normally encounter, but I wanted to try to be challenged to learn things that I haven't learned before. And so now, so I would say, you know, cookbooks are actually been really influential uh, for me. I'll tell you another book. This is not about health per se, that actually was really influential to me. Um, so, you know, the, there's a field of mixed martial arts, which, you know, we see on television and it's a kind of a big deal now. And it's a combat form that's a sport that involves using different skills like boxing and wrestling and kickboxing and judo and all that kind of stuff. Well, I read a book that was written by the father of mixed martial arts. He's been attributed to be one of the fathers of mixed martial arts by Bruce Lee. So Bruce Lee was a martial artist. He died many, many years ago uh, in the 70s, but he came from Hong Kong. He was an American, actually. He went back to Hong Kong, grew up in America, and he realized that sticking to one style of anything, karate, judo, taekwondo, is too limiting. And that what you really want to be able to do is to adapt yourself to learn different styles and to adapt yourself to different circumstances. And so he wrote a book called The Tao 
TAO of Jeet Kune Do, JKD, which is actually his style. Um, and it was, and it's an old book now. You can still get it online. There's a Bruce Lee Foundation that reissued it, a wonderful collector's uh, version. But it really talks about his philosophy. So although he was a fighter and a martial artist, he was actually a philosopher. He studied philosophy in college. And so I, I, I sometimes will go back to read that because, um, you know, he talks about this idea of being like water, like to actually navigate through life. You don't want to be rigid and broken like a branch that could snap, but you want to be flexible and adapt yourself. And I think that's really important when it comes to food and health is to learn how to know yourself and adapt yourself to your circumstances uh, around you. And that's actually also been something that's been quite influential for me. I, that's a new recommendation. I'm actually really personally excited to check out. I've uh, in the last year or so started training actually in Jikundo and also some other arts like Kali oh. and different forms of that. And I love the movement aspect of them, but I also love the meditative aspect of those patterns and the energy interaction with another person. But that's so amazing because I've never heard anyone else talk about Jikundo. That's so exciting. No, that's cool. Well, you should go to the look at check out the Bruce Lee Foundation, um, which was the family foundation that that uh, his uh, his daughter and his wife set up, and they just republished this incredible philosophy book called the Tao T A O of Jeet Kune Do, and it really talks about. I mean, it's all his original philosophies and writings, so really worthwhile for anybody who wants to delve a little bit more into the roots of how to be in touch with your body how to be flexible and adaptive and why you want to break away from rigid styles of anything, rigid styles of eating, rigid styles of fad dieting, rigid styles of fasting, even like, you know, this is, this is about getting in touch with who you are yourself. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited to check this out. And this may actually have already answered the last question I had for you, uh, or at least touch on it, which is if you had any parting advice for the listeners today that could be related to something we've talked about or entirely unrelated. Well, no, I, I, I do actually. Um, you know, I'm somebody who really appreciates food culture. I love foods from traditions that actually really value these recipes have been handed down for hundreds of years. You know, like I've, I've had my fair share of like fancy meals over the course of my life and my career, but honestly, like the traditional foods that, you know, frankly, families and peasants ate for celebration or just even simple eating is something I really enjoy. And so I think that, you know, I'm a big proponent in respecting the food cultures that are out there. They're usually incredibly delicious and tasty. They've been time proven. You know, they're not going to be harmful to you. They're probably going to be healthy for you. But what it gives you the opportunity to do, and this is really my parting words, is to love your food, to love your health. If you can align what you love about something that you're going to eat, along with how much you care about your health, now you've got the perfect alignment of how to actually make a food choice how to plan a meal, and how to actually share food with your community in a way that's healthy for everyone. That's beautiful. And I think very applicable to moms who are often the food preparers for our families. And I think a perfect wrapping up point for today, although I could talk to you for so long because you're such a wealth of knowledge. I'm very, very grateful for you being here today and sharing. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks as always to all of you who are listening for sharing your most valuable resources, your time, your energy, and your attention with us today. We're both so grateful that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time. And thanks as always for listening.